good to be with you this morning. Um, Jamie asked me to come in and, and just kind of um, start things a little bit this morning. Um, Sarah's teaching, uh, so you won't be disappointed to have somebody else teach instead of her. But I, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about, um, I know many of you know, but Josiah and Alethea Wong lost their little baby. She was eight months, about eight months along, I believe. And um, she uh, went to work on Monday, I guess, and didn't really feel much movement and went to the doctor. And then the doctor said, you need to go to the hospital. And so um, they induced and, and she gave birth and their little girl they named Talia. And um, Elias and Selah got to be and see and, and now they're home and they're just broken hearted, of course. And um, so what I wanted to do is just give you that announcement, but also maybe just let us think about a few things, how we can shepherd our hearts to think rightly. Um, so if you take your Bible and, and open to First Peter chapter 1, <clears throat> now as you're turning there, I'll, I'll just remind you of, of what we've been um, talking about in, in Romans, from Romans 5, that you, you know that when God saves a sinner, it's not just saving an, uh, an individual, we are in solidarity with Adam, that's the kind of the word that is probably the best to use, versus this cohesiveness with Adam and all of his people, um, a concrete slab, and we're all cemented into that slab of oneness together with him in, in spiritual deadness to God, in, in sin, and in condemnation. And so for Jesus to save us, um, he doesn't have to just come find you like you're this lone little person. He, he must break you out of that oneness that all of humanity has in Adam. And then he has to cement you into his people um, to give you solidarity with him and with everyone else. And what God uses to break you free from the one solidarity into his solidarity is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It's faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is a gift. There is no way in our condition, in that slab of oneness with Adam that we possess within ourselves, number one, desire to trust the Lord, uh, let alone just the ability to trust the Lord. We believed a lot of things when we were um, unbelievers. We believed that we would live for ourselves and we entrusted ourselves to that. We, we didn't even have the right kind of trust. God had to come to us in Christ in the preaching of the gospel bringing the gift of faith and Jesus saying, trust me with this that I give to you. And by God's miraculous work in salvation, we did. So what I want to do is I want to use Peter's words to kind of build on that and examine faith for just a, just a moment. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There's um, 
some solidarity with him there about things and inheritance that we do not yet have. We have a right to. It is ours. We possess it. We just have not experienced the fullness of that yet. Now, how does God um, protect that? How does he keep that sure? Look at verse 5. We are the ones who are protected by the power of God. That's really comforting, isn't it? We're not protected by our own goodness. We're not protected by our own faithfulness. We're not protected by things like that. We're protected by the power of God. But it's the next phrase that I want you to see. Protected by the power of God through faith. Through faith. And it's at times like this, for me anyway, where I feel like you got to be kidding me. I mean, my faith is so weakened and so wobbly it seems um, shaken. But, but look what God is doing with this faith. <clears throat> We're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's still so much more coming in our salvation that we, we don't even know. Um, and we are protected through faith. In this you greatly rejoice, verse 6, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, And the idea there is, and it is necessary. It is. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. There we are. There we are. What is God doing with these trials? Protecting us through wobbly faith. But what is he doing through these trials? So that, verse 7, the proof of your faith... Now, dot, 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 here's the main clause. The proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is doing something through these distressing and various trials to make something evident. Um, And he's going to do it when his son comes. So when Jesus comes, there's something that he wants to put on display. There's something he wants to prove. And that is that your faith would be found to result in praise and honor and glory. In other words, he, the faith that he gives in salvation, when he comes, he's going to draw attention to it. That faith, you were distressed by all kinds of trials. You were refined in ways that you never uh, wanted, but came to you. And here you are standing at my revelation. I am here with you. And that's my faith. And it results in praise and honor and glory. Your faith that he gives is is honored. That is a precious faith. Verse 7. It's more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire. So there's what God is doing with faith. We use that faith that he brought to believe Christ, to believe the gospel. And we were broken out of solidarity with Adam. We were put into Christ. Um, He is, through that faith, protecting us. Um, And he's testing that faith over and over and over. So I just want you to know that with this faith that he gave you, then that means, if this is what he's going to do, and he's going to hold us all the way to the end, then you can trust God with that faith with inexplicable loss. We can. 
and we will. We'll feel wobbly, but we will. And with this faith that he gives, you can trust God to learn how to weep with those who weep. Um, don't ask me, how do you weep with those who weep? I, I, no, you just cry with them. You just, your heart's just broken. That's what you do. And with this faith that he gave, you can trust God also to learn how to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're supposed to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We have, um, I think there were, there was, about, I think, 10 women uh, about to give birth in the next days and months. There's going to be much to rejoice with other people with as well. Um, the challenging part is learning how to do both of those things in the same day from one conversation to the next. And so you can trust God with the faith that he gave you to learn how to do that well too. That you will go from one conversation where you're weeping with those who weep and you will go to the next one and you will rejoice. Don't ask me how to do that. I don't know. But we'll do it and we can trust God with that, can't we? If he gave us this faith to trust in his son, we can trust him with these things. He's testing it. He'll refine it. He'll make it strong. Um, and I want to say, too, that with this faith that he has given to us, we can also trust God that when we don't do that well, when we don't weep and rejoice well with each other, that we can forgive each other. Don't, ladies, don't be afraid. Um, and tell your husbands to not be afraid. I'll, maybe I'll tell some of them later here. But don't be afraid to step into what is, you have no idea what to say, but just step in and, and weep or rejoice and, and speak and say something. And it, it probably won't be right every single time. And that's okay. Um, you're, you're not going to break. They're, the ones who are weeping are trusting the Lord that they can receive whatever it is that you're trying to bring. And we can trust God and overlook our complaints about how we say things and things like that. We just need to, we just still need to step into each other's lives and not be afraid to do that. Um, if God didn't want the brokenhearted to never, ever, ever hear something that wasn't helpful, then it, it wouldn't be possible to say something that's not helpful. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, it, it's worse to, to do nothing. It's worse to step away than... Um, hoping that you're just going to protect them because you don't know what to say. That's okay. Step towards them even though you don't know what to say and love each other and care for each other. Um, you can trust God with that faith to do all of that. And we'll learn how to do this well together. Um, so why don't we pray and then we'll let you ladies carry on with your morning together. Okay. By the way, before we pray, this is, this is one of the best things you could do next is um, with such loss and things like this it'd be good to be together and to open your bible and shepherd your heart that way right let's pray father in heaven we do lift up to you this morning um, aletheia and josiah and lord in their inexplicable loss would you please um, draw near to them and comfort them lord a day will come where you will bring comfort um, by removing every distressing trial. But that's not where we are right now. And the way that you comfort us in the midst of our pain and our loss is just by being near to us, by, by being our comfort. And so I pray that you would do that 
for Alethea and Josiah and Helen and uh, Wayman, for Katie and Barnabas, for all of the family, for the little ones. Comfort them by being near to them. May they have an overwhelming assurance of your care and your love for them. Even though they have experienced a loss they don't have words for. So glorify yourself by being their comfort. And Father, would you please guide us as a church family? We need to learn how to continue to learn how to step into one another's lives where there's been um, loss. And we don't know how to do that very well. We feel very weak in that. But we trust you, and we will trust you in this trial. And um, Lord, help us to be an encouragement to one another. Lord, help us to not be afraid to weep with those who weep, and then help us to not be afraid to rejoice with those who rejoice. And if we feel like everybody should be weeping, and why are those people over there rejoicing, Lord, give us grace towards them and mercy towards them. That's not wrong. That's the way that it is, and we need to trust you with even that. So, Father, we we ask for your help. We ask for wisdom and how to just walk well with one another. Bless these ladies' time this morning. Lord, bless the teaching of your word. Shepherd um, our hearts with your word, we pray, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, ladies. It's kind of hard to make this transition right now, but um, we're going to do what we came to do this morning. And how, um, I mean, I just, how blessed are we to have shepherding, um, to have God's word, to have his spirit, to have his power, um, his truth. And so um, we're going to make a transition. And uh, this morning, Sarah Demarest is here, and um, she's going to be teaching from Titus 2, 3 through 5, and I cannot think of anyone else who I'd rather hear from. She mentors me in this, encourages um, many of you in this. If you don't know Sarah Demarest, um, I hope you will get to know her. Most of you do, unless you're really new to the body. Um, but Sarah is kind of the, I don't know, she, <laughs> she's shaking her head no, but <laughs> it is by the grace of God. Um, Saturday Wellspring, Wellspring um, as a whole, and Saturday Wellspring especially is her home. We talked about um, her wearing slippers this morning, so she could be because she's, this is, her comfort, <laughs> so, and just being here and being with all of us, so um, that's what we're going to do, and we're privileged to have Sarah, um, and then I wanted to just talk about um, this, this morning, Diana, um, your group will be cleaning up, Diana and Allie's group, and then if enough of you can stay to help out with that, we have a meeting afterwards, the discussion group leaders. So if you guys can just head over to the fives room over here as soon as you can, um, that would be helpful for us. So um, Sarah, come up and 
Thank you so much. Good morning. I really just would much rather just uh, go around and hug everybody and um, then just stand up here and read some psalms for the morning. Wouldn't that be sweet? Um, God's wise design when unbeknownst to us when months ago the schedule for Wellspring being prayed over and planned for his design is that this is what we would be studying today and um, I'm really thankful for what Scott shared um, because a big part of Titus 2 it's our lesson today um, is about our relationships with each other and how essential, critical that is in the body of Christ, that as women we are part of each other's lives, building each other up, encouraging one another. Um, and so that's my prayer is that our lesson today will just take us in our time of grieving together as a body and um, spur us on and encourage us and prepare us to continue to care well for each other. So let me pray. And we will get going. Heavenly Father, I am just so grateful for who you are and that you are a God who is pleased to reveal yourself to us in your word, your word that is unfailing, unchanging, incapable of error, powerful, penetrating, true, trustworthy because it is where you have chosen to reveal yourself thank you lord that when we come to your word we get you thank you for the promises that you've given us in your word that your word will always go forward and accomplish what you intend that it's useful to teach us instruct us to cleanse us Father, I am so thankful for your design to make us a body with one another. I'm so thankful, Lord, just to be here, to be with these friends, these sisters. Lord, it is being home. These are, Lord, we're one. You've made us one in Christ, and I get to be here with them, and we get to open your word together. And so I'm just thankful. I pray that your spirit would be at work in these words and in all of our hearts to make us soft and Lord where we need encouragement you would encourage where we need help and strength you would help and strengthen and Lord where we need to be admonished we would be humble and repentant and teachable oh father I pray that this time would glorify you and produce much fruit in our lives in Jesus name amen. <coughs> Well, it is a joy to be here with you, and I do feel at home here. It's um, just a blessing to be here, to sit under God's word together. So we will do what we do every week in Wellspring. We'll start with reviewing our Wellspring purpose and discipline. So turn in your Bible to Hebrews 12. For those of you who are in my small group, you already know what we're going to talk about, Hebrews 12, 28, and 29. And turn your notebook over, and we will get started. 
All right, the purpose of Wellspring, you have on the back of your notebook there, is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God. So that, so today I'm going to say we, so that we live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And we flesh that out with three disciplines. Discipline one is the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And then discipline two is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Now, last time, Jamie taught a biblical survey of the home, and wasn't it so helpful to see in the word, cover to cover, God's concern for our household relationships and how connected that ministry in our home and with our families is to God's word and discipline one. And today's lesson is a really great follow-on to that lesson because rather than looking at the panorama of scripture, we're going to just look at a couple little verses. And again, we will see that discipline one cannot be disconnected from discipline two and discipline three as well. Um, So what we have in these disciplines really is God's design for us from his word. And then discipline three is ministry with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority. The faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Now much of the time, discipline two and discipline three involves service of one kind or another. And that service is a privilege. It's a blessing. But at the same time, it can be difficult. It's not always convenient. We get tired. And because believers are in a mixed condition, we can also struggle with our heart attitude behind our service. You know, and that can be all the more true during the holidays when we find ourselves with additional opportunities to serve and extend hospitality. And so we're going to read Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29, for some biblical perspective on the service involved in Discipline 2 and Discipline 3. So Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, the first thing to notice here is who is being served. It's God. God is the one we are actually serving when we are faithful with discipline two and discipline three. And we want to aim at acceptable service, worshipful service, service that's done with a heart of reverence and awe for God. And working backwards from there in verse 28, we see that acceptable service flows from gratitude. Gratitude that we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That is a gospel reality. And discipline one is where we draw near to God through his word each day and behold these kinds of gospel realities and truths about God. And we don't just take them in as information, but we respond to them with worship and thankfulness so that 
we are fortified to offer acceptable, worshipful service in all that God has prepared for us each day. And so especially with this busy season, can I give you a little extra encouragement not to leave the disciplines behind? You know, we have a lot of opportunities to serve, but we don't want to let that service be soured because we've lost sight of the great treasure that we have in our relationship with Jesus. And if you would like a little extra fortification in this area, I want to encourage you to go to the church website and search for 2016 Mary and Martha. That's a wellspring lesson that there wasn't room in the schedule for this year. But I promise you it would be a gift to your own heart and to the people around you. I'm quite certain of that. Um, I'm going to listen to it very soon. Uh, it's just a, a really great encouragement to be faithful in the shepherding our hearts when there are lots of demands. All right, go ahead now and turn over to Titus 2 in your Bible. Now today's lesson um, is on Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, and we're going to see several layers in this lesson. There are instructions for godly living, um, and there are also <coughs> instructions for our relationships with each other, especially older women and younger women. And then there is the big picture, how all of this fits into the life of the church. Um, and as with any passage of scripture, understanding why these verses are here is essential for correctly understanding our passage. And so that's where we'll start. So the book of Titus was written by Paul, and in it, he is addressing a problem. The churches in Crete are out of order, and that's why Paul left Titus there. Maybe you remember that from Scott's sermon series on Titus. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Excuse me. The churches needed to be put in order, and they needed elders to help bring that order. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul described a problem in the churches in Crete that the elders must address. There were rebellious men who professed to know God, but by their deeds... They denied him, and these men were exerting an influence. Verse 11 tells us they were upsetting whole families. Households were being thrown into confusion. And so Paul gave instructions for godly living that would bring order. Um, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes to Titus, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he begins with instructions for godly living, addressing older men and women, younger men and women, even slaves, all different kinds of people found in households and in the church because when there are people who profess to know God but by their deeds they deny him, it is all the more essential that those who truly know God show that they know him by their deeds. And in verses 3 through 5, we find his specific instructions for us as women, instructions in godliness, and instructions for how we are to help one another grow in godliness. And so let's read beginning in Titus 2, verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women 
to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now here in these instructions for setting the church in order, we see that it's necessary for God's word to be honored. And in order for God's word to be honored, our lives and our relationships need to show that we've been changed by the gospel. Isn't that weighty? God has entrusted a great responsibility to us as women in the church. Now, thankfully, Paul didn't stop there. Beginning in verse 11, he explains the gospel foundation under these instructions. We'll read beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And what are those good deeds for which we are to be zealous? How do we honor and obey grace's instruction? It's what we have in verses 3 through 5. Now remember, salvation is by faith alone. Our works do not add to what Christ has done. Rather, they display what Christ has done in our lives. And so this godly character in verses 3 through 5 is exactly what Christ redeemed us for, to be zealous for these kinds of good deeds so that we would clearly be seen to be his people. These are grace's instructions for us. And how gracious that God does instruct us how to live. He doesn't leave us in the dark, does he? So be encouraged. But it's also sobering because grace's instructions are not optional. Our godliness is important in the life of the church. There was a problem in Crete, and the women had to be part of the solution. And we too need to remember who we are in Christ and honor grace's instructions to fulfill the role he has given us to strengthen the church. And our church needs you. And other women need you. And you need other women. These instructions are God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives so that our households are protected. Remember, that was under attack in Crete. And so that our church is strengthened, so that we give the world no reason to discredit God's word and its crown jewel, the gospel. So let's turn to page two of our worksheet. We can summarize our passage with a statement at the top of the page there. The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed younger women. Roman numeral one on the outline is what older women transformed by the gospel must be. So let's start by talking about what's meant by older women. 
Well, the text doesn't indicate a specific age range. It's probably referring to women who are at least 50 or 60, whose children are grown. But it's helpful to maybe stop and think about the contrast with what our culture says about that season of life. Um, our culture, if you've looked around us, you might think that season of life is about leisure, entertainment. It's time to take care of yourself, right? Because you've just spent all those years taking care of other people, and so now you deserve a break. This is your time. But that's not what God's Word says. According to God's Word, God's wisdom is that older women have a great responsibility to be godly encouragers of the women in the church. There is no retirement from the body of Christ. And so this is what we all need to be aiming for. Even if you're a young woman, this is your time of preparation for this older woman ministry. Don't make it your biggest dream to do nothing someday. <laughs> it's tempting, isn't it? But that is not what God is refining us for. We need to be diligent now to grow in our walk with the Lord, like we remember every week with Discipline 1, and our ministry in our home, like we review every week in Discipline 2, and in our church, it's Discipline 3, so that we are well prepared to fulfill the role God has for us as we grow older. And by way of application, it's also helpful to realize that older is a relative term. In one respect, all we need to be older is you just have to find someone who's younger. Exactly, <laughs> right? Because all of us are older than somebody. All of us can encourage those who are younger. It might be in age or it might be younger in the faith as we remind one another of the gospel and its implications, and as we help one another understand how to use our gospel hope and to use God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in godliness. And all of us benefit from being teachable younger women as we learn from other women and let them spur us on in our walk with the Lord. And we can build these relationships in many different ways in the life of the church. It could be women with whom we serve, could be our small group, and it certainly is true here in Wellspring. That's why I'm sure you're reminded lesson after lesson, week after week, that we all have a responsibility to be caring for each other here. And uh, at Grace Bible Church, we also have a mentoring ministry for women because there are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an older or younger woman. And so if that's something you're interested in, contact Chris Evans. Her contact information is at the end of the outline because that's one of the ways she serves our bodies to help connect women find, and find those kinds of relationships. So what is the older woman to be? Well, the character of the gospel-transformed older woman is described in four ways. She's reverent in her behavior, she's not a malicious gossip, she's not enslaved to much wine, and she teaches what is good. Her life is to set an example that others can follow, and these qualities make her the kind of woman who is ready to train and encourage younger women. So what is reverence? Well, the word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple, like a priest. 
in a sacred place. Paul is saying that the older women are to do everything with a view towards worshiping God. We are to see all of our lives as set apart for God. And we need to be careful not to be deceived by the pseudo-spirituality that is so prevalent, even in the Christian culture. Um, we will not be reverent in our behavior if we're full of biblical knowledge, but careless about biblical living. We will not be reverent in our behavior if we're just imagining what God says to us. Rather, reverent behavior begins with understanding that there is only one place where we go to hear from God, and that's his word. That's, again, why discipline one is so important. And reverence for God and his word overflows into reverent behavior as we respond to his word with worshipful obedience in every part of our lives. It's not just when we're alone with our Bible open or when we're at church or small group, but it's in every part of our life, in all places, at all times. And number two on the outline is not malicious gossips. Now, the Greek word for malicious gossips is translated as slanderers in the ESV, and it's used 34 times in the New Testament for the devil, the one who accuses and slanders us before God and who also slanders God to us. Remember his conversation with Eve in the garden? That's what he was doing. And so this is serious. Slander is literally diabolical. Of the three instances in which it refers to speech rather than the devil, two of them are specifically directed at women. So this is something we need to be concerned about, alarmed about even. We need to have a healthy distrust of our own self-assessment when it comes to malicious gossip and slander. We need to recognize that even when it masquerades under some other name like venting, processing, sharing, or reposting. So how can we know if something is appropriate to say or to repeat? Well, Ephesians 4.29 is very helpful here. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So before we speak, we need to ask ourselves, are these wholesome words? Are these words good for edification, for building others up at this time? Will these words give grace to those who hear them. And it's fair to add, as we consider slander, do our words give grace to those about whom we are speaking? At a heart level, when we are tempted to slander and gossip, it's because we're not thinking and responding biblically to some situation. We would rather talk about it than pray about it. We'd rather accuse than forgive. You know, there is a time to talk about problems. We need to talk about problems with the right people and for the right purpose, to call others to repentance, to pursue reconciliation and restoration. That kind of talk is not gossip. That's wholesome, edifying talk. But the warning here is for women not to be slanderers, not to accuse, not to speak it, 
post it, like it, repeat it, listen to it, read it, excuse it, or even think it. Believers have been set free from that. And now we are being made more and more like our Savior, who is our advocate. He is not our accuser. We must imitate him by advocating for others in prayer rather than finding sinful satisfaction in gossip and slander. Number three, then, is not enslaved to much wine. Now, nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places he condemns drunkenness. Older women are exhorted not to be enslaved to much wine. And the emphasis is on the word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. Obviously, that was a problem with the women in the churches at Crete because that's what Paul addressed here. And still today, many see alcohol as an escape. But the reality is that it only enslaves those who hope to escape through it. And alcohol is not the only thing that enslaves when we seek to escape or find comfort through it. It could be food, shopping, our phones, TV, the list goes on. We're in danger of enslavement if we turn to these for escape or comfort. These things can be enjoyed with self-control and with thankfulness as good gifts from God. But God himself is to be our comfort and our refuge, our rest. And so regarding alcohol in particular, I just want to urge all of us to be careful. If it is flowing frequently, if it's your reward after a hard day, be careful. We are communicating something when we do that to our kids, to our friends. And it's not a message that puts Christ on display as our greatest treasure and the one to whom we run for comfort. So the reverent woman is a woman who is shepherding her heart away from malicious gossip, away from enslavement to alcohol or to anything, to find her joy, her comfort, her peace in her Savior, Jesus. That's the fruit of the gospel in an older woman's life. It's how we honor grace's instruction. <clears throat> Finally, number four, Paul says that older women are to teach what is good. This is an ability to help a younger woman understand the things that would be beneficial to her. And where does that come from? It comes from God's word. The word gives us God's wisdom. Once again, we see that discipline one is essential so that we're equipped for discipline two and discipline three, for teaching other women what is good beginning in our own home. We need to be women who bring others to the word of God to help one another understand God's character and his promises, the gospel and its implications, and then to live obediently in response. And we do this through both our example and our words. You know, it's interesting in Titus chapter 2, it wasn't Titus who was told to do this. The church needs older women to encourage younger women. So that brings us to Roman numeral 2. Jamie, do you take a break or do you just keep going? Okay, 
So if you're having trouble staying awake, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's early and I'm so thankful you're here, but feel free to get up and get something to eat or something to drink or pace or whatever you need to do because I know it's tough this early hour. Okay, back in the old days, we used to take a break in the middle of a lesson. <laughs> I know, see, that's what you get for not taking it till now. <laughs> okay, take a deep breath, are we all ready? Okay, Roman numeral two. What transformed older women must train the young women to be? So verse four begins, so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. Now encourage here means to train, to advise, to urge. It's an ongoing influence because growth takes time. It requires patience. And young women, this is saying that you need older women to teach and encourage you, to advise you, even to urge you at times. And that's hard. It takes a lot of humility and grace. You have to be teachable. And so this is a real opportunity for us to live together in light of the gospel. So let's read Titus 2, 4, and 5 again and remind ourselves what it is that the older women are to teach the younger women. Older women are to be this way so that they may encourage or train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Older women are to train and urge the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. So let's look at our first quality, husband lovers. To love her husband is in the Greek literally to be a husband lover. It describes who a woman is, not just what she does. A wife is to pursue being devoted to her husband, cherishing him, loving him with a self-giving love, being friends with him, this is a self-giving love that we choose to give. And this is all the more astounding when we remember that most Cretan marriages were arranged. In that setting, a woman who truly and deeply loved her husband would stand out as a representative of the gospel. And with all of the confusion in our culture about marriage, we also have an opportunity to stand out as gospel representatives, whether we're married or not, by placing a high value on what God's word says about marriage. Now, although today marriage is based on personal choice and love, this is still a kind of love that needs to be learned. It is sadly all too easy for sin to creep into our attitude towards our husband. Criticism, Indifference, unforgiveness, bitterness, judgment, ingratitude, discontentment. And so we have to actively cultivate self-giving love and to encourage one another in this, to model our love after God's love for us in Jesus Christ. In the same way that we do not have to earn God's affection, do not make your husband or your children or anyone else for that matter earn your love and affection. Don't withhold your love, your friendship, your affection. Love unconditionally, even when others are stubborn and disobedient. 
because that's exactly what you cherish about God's love for you. Let them cherish that kind of love from you. Lavish God's grace on them, just as God has lavished his grace on you. To help women love their husbands, we need to understand God's purpose for marriage. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And marriage is about displaying the self-giving love of God, uh, self-giving love of the Godhead. It's not primarily about what makes us happy. God intends our challenges and struggles to draw us closer to him, to make us more like Jesus so that we better reflect him in our marriage. We display his work in our lives as we give up pride, selfishness, control, so that we better reflect him in our marriage. We display his work um, in our lives as we do these things, and we need to help young women understand this. This relationship um, is a priority. It's listed first in the list. After our relationship with Jesus, our husband is to be first in our heart, in our mind, in our priorities. Before children, ministry, activities, work. Does your husband have first place when it comes to your time? Do you find him telling do you find yourself telling him what you're going to do or do you ask him? Are you loving your husband well with how you use your time after the kids are in bed? With the time that you go to bed, we need to learn what our husband prefers and then to put his preferences ahead of our own. It's easy to get so busy that things get turned around and other things take priority and we find ourselves caring more about getting things done or what we think we need and just wishing he would serve us rather than prioritizing and finding joy in loving and serving him. And so we need to encourage women to give their best to their husband, to be thoughtful of him, to be respectful of him. Ephesians 5.33 says that the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And the verse doesn't say, if he deserves it. You know, that's how the world thinks. But the gospel is put on display when we respect our husband out of our love for God. It honors God when we truly and genuinely, from the heart, because of God's love for us, pour ourselves out in self-giving love for our husband, putting his needs and preferences above our own and treasuring him, not comparing him to anyone else. This is the kind of love in which young women need to be encouraged. Now, if you are not married, I want to challenge you too. Are you cultivating this kind of self-giving love toward the people that God has put in your household, your brothers and sisters, your parents, your roommates. Of course, it's going to look different outside the marriage relationship, but the foundational principles of selflessness and grace being motivated by God's love are exactly the same. And this kind of love for others shows the lost world that we belong to Christ. Those men are a little rowdy, aren't they? <laughs> okay, I'm going to speak up. <laughs> all right, we want them to hear all about being children lovers. <laughs> okay, number two is children lovers. That brings us to encouraging the young women to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application is to mothers, and we all have the opportunity to love and cherish children. 
and there are children around all of us whom we can love, especially here at Grace Bible Church. And it's so encouraging to see the many ways in which you are children lovers. Being a lover of children means we are to cherish and enjoy children, that we are intentional about loving them in a way that points them to Christ. This is a love that is selfless and affectionate, and it's modeled after God's love for us in the gospel, just like the love for a husband is. It's interesting that though there is so much that can and needs to be said about training and parenting children, here Paul focuses on the heart attitude. By all means, parents need to diligently search the scriptures to understand the responsibilities that God has entrusted to them as parents. But what Paul highlights here is the attitude that must undergird everything we do with children, whether we're parents or not. It's an attitude of self-giving love. This is an attitude that must be constantly fed with truth from God's word and drawing near to the Lord because children and our own children in particular will expose our sin, our self-love, our love of comfort and ease as fast as anything. And if we head into our day cherishing what we love and the way we want the day to go, we will not have an attitude of self-giving love, particularly when our, children's, our children are the ones responsible for tipping over our little idols of what we want and how we think life should go. But we will be ready to pour out self-giving love to our children when we are shepherding our hearts with the truth that we are not our own. Our time is not our own. We belong to the Lord, and every opportunity that he gives us to engage with children is an opportunity to serve him in the strength which he provides. And at times, it's overwhelming, and it's really hard to figure out what to do, and there are competing demands just crashing down on us all at the same time but he hasn't left us alone. Being overwhelmed or weary or tired or sick never means we have to sin. We can't love on our best day left to our own strength, can we? And so a hard day can actually be a gift because it reminds us that we must be drinking deeply of the love God has for us if we're going to be pouring out self-giving love to children. This is the kind of love and dependence on the Lord that young women need to be taught and shown. And one way we can all love children is to support this hard work that their parents are doing by encouraging our little friends and our grandkids to honor and obey their parents. And as we persevere in loving children in a biblical way, we are strengthening our homes and our church. Well, number three is sensible. Okay. To be sensible deals primarily with the mind or thought life. It means that we are not to run for the edges or the extremes in our thought life, but instead strive for reserved balanced thinking that's not easily moved off center. Being sensible means that we will give each situation its 
proper weight. Not too much, not too little. Now, whether or not we are being sensible is to a large degree determined by our focus, by what we allow to have the final word in how we think about things. Now, you know that there are cameras that have lenses that can make the objects at a certain depth of focus fade or blur? Well, being sensible is not letting our circumstances blur what is eternally true, what we know to be true from God's word about his character and his promises and the gospel. Being sensible means that we keep these weighty, unchanging truths in sharp focus so that they have the final word in our circumstances. We don't let the situation undermine our confidence and hope in the Lord. Keeping eternal truth as the standard by which we consider our circumstances and respond to them guards our peace and our trust in the Lord. And it guards us from letting our circumstances dominate our thinking and lead us down paths of anxiety, fear, worry, and all kinds of other sin. Being sensible protects God's word from dishonor because it shows just how trustworthy God's word is. Well, that brings us to pure. Now, in your homework for today, you read the book of Titus. So perhaps you noticed that throughout the book of Titus, there's a contrast between purity and impurity. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but... To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So do you see that contrast? There's pure versus defiled. Now defiled means sullied, spoiled, corrupted. And then later on in chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says that unbelievers are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That's what impurity does to us. It seeks to enslave us. And so when we talk about being pure, our focus should not be simply on all the things we can't do. Now, I think sometimes we make that mistake. But when we say pure, we're talking about protection from that which corrupts and will only seek to enslave us. Because before we, were before we were saved, we were defiled. There was nothing pure about us. But chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We belong to Jesus. He purified us for himself. And we get to show that in our purity loving what is pure, embracing what is pure, pursuing what is pure in every area of our lives, and hating everything that is impure, that corrupts and that defiles, fleeing from all that is impure. Jesus' sacrifice of himself is put on display when our lives show that he purified us. And purity is God's standard for every area of our lives. Our thoughts, our motives, our words, 
desires, dreams, actions, clothing, relationships, entertainment. Scott Maxwell once said, if we never let into our heart one impure scene from outside of us, like from a movie or a website, we would still have enough impurity in our own hearts to deal with for a lifetime. And so don't heap more impurity upon your mind with what you let in, what you look at, what you watch, what you read. We need to flee from impurity to take hold of that which is pure and good because we belong to Jesus. He gave himself to purify us for himself. And our homes and our church need us to be pure, to show that what Christ has done in his people is so much better than the corruption and defilement of the world. Well, next we have worker at home. This describes a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands the value and the priority of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. And again, it can be learned. That's good news, right? And now we also need to be careful how we understand this. If we are not employed outside our home, we can't assume that that means automatically that we're workers at home because there are lots of opportunities for laziness, busyness, misplaced priorities that take us away from the priority and work of the home. And if we are employed outside of our home or we're working from home, whether we are single or whether we're married, we must not conclude that we can't be workers at home or that somehow that's not our responsibility. This quality is not optional for any woman or in any season of life. It's just like being pure or being sensible. It describes who we are, not just what we do in a certain season of life. Being a home-working woman is a heart attitude that is necessary for the honor of God's word. So what does the work of a household include? Well, the first priority is to love and nurture the people who live there and visit there. And yet it also means being faithful with the work that a household requires, being good stewards of all that God has entrusted to us and learning diligence in managing the many tasks so that inasmuch as it's up to us, our home is a place of peace and order that serves well all those who come into it. Being a worker at home means joyfully accepting the time investment that's required to serve and care well for those in our home. For the married woman with children at home, it includes finding contentment in helping her husband, shepherding her children, and seeing to the many practical needs of her household. And there are seasons when this work leaves very little room for anything else, even very good things. And so how does that leave us to think about work outside of the home? Well, the Proverbs 31 woman shows us an example of a woman who was busy with many things outside of her home. And yet she was still clearly a worker in her home. Her household relationships didn't suffer from her work outside of her home. 
And so there are circumstances when it's appropriate for a woman to work outside of her home or from her home. But if you are married, especially if you have children, it's a weighty decision to engage in this kind of additional work. And it's a decision that needs to be made carefully under the leadership of your husband as together you evaluate and pray in your particular season of life. What is your motivation? What's the best thing for your walk with the Lord? What's the best thing for your marriage, for your family, for your church? And there are times when a woman may need to work outside her home in order to submit to her husband. No matter the circumstances, there needs to be a clear way for every woman to be a worker at home, to be available for the work in our homes, even if we're also employed outside our homes. So if you do work outside your home or from your home, understand that God's design is that you are also a worker in your home, no matter your season of life. And by his grace, seek to work in your home and in your job with all your heart as serving the Lord. And recognize that it can be challenging. There's a lot of other good things that you might have to say no to. But our Savior is trustworthy. If this is what he has for you, his grace is abundant and sufficient for you. This is his plan for you to give him glory and for you to be made more like Jesus right now. And you are part of a body. Let godly older women encourage you and support you in the challenge of being a worker outside of your home while still being a faithful worker in your home. Either way, grace instructs all of us to be home-working women. And if that's a struggle for you, find an older woman to help you cultivate both the heart and the skills for the work of your home. Just like everything else on this list, we must be home-working women so that God's word will not be dishonored. Okay, that brings us then to kind. Now this word kind is also translated good in the New Testament. It's a kindness or goodness that comes from the heart. And then it overflows into words and actions that benefit others. It's interesting how kindness follows right on the heels of workers at home. Often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right in our own homes with those relationships. And sadly, very often, our household and our family is where we can be most careless with kindness in our actions, attitudes, words, tone, even our facial expressions and body language. We can be tempted to leave kindness behind because we feel rushed or just unappreciated. But since genuine kindness is something that God produces in our lives by his Holy Spirit, then it cannot be based on what others do or don't do. Kindness is not a reaction to those around us. It is a reflection of our Heavenly Father. And grace instructs us to be kind. Okay, number seven. Being subject to, our, to their own husbands. So let me just ask, what do you think about submission? You know, before Christ... 
All we wanted was self-rule. Remember back at the beginning of the year, the blue chart, the left side? We were dead. And so all we wanted was to rule ourselves. But now, as those who are new creations in Christ, we can still find that residue of sin of wanting to grasp for self-rule. Even though God is the one who places us under authority at many different levels. And he always does so for our own good. And so we need to let our minds be transformed by the truth of God's word and encourage younger women to think biblically about submission as well. Understanding submission is relevant whether you are single or married. A biblical understanding of submission prepares us to encourage our married friends, and it prepares us for marriage if God has that in our future. And no matter our season of life, there are authorities to whom we must submit. In the family, in jobs, church, school, government, and the heart struggle that we have with that authority very often boils down to whether or not we trust God to sovereignly lead us through fallen sinful people. So understanding submission here will help us deal with submission with authority in other settings as well. So being subject means to voluntarily place oneself under. It's placing ourselves under. It's not waiting for someone else to come and require our submission. It's not something we do only when someone is watching. We're lining ourselves up under our husband's leadership. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And as Christ is honored by a church that submits joyfully and wholeheartedly, so in the same way we honor Christ when we submit to our husband joyfully and wholeheartedly, even as we trust Christ. Grace's instruction is not honored by grudging or partial cooperation. Submission in marriage is a great privilege because we get to display the submission of the church to her Savior. But if it's such a great thing, why can it be so hard? We could point to a lot of things, but ultimately the biggest struggle to submit comes from our own sinful hearts. We love to rule ourselves, to trust in ourselves, to think that we are right. And so we need to realize that our battle with submission is not a battle against our husband or against someone else in authority. It's a battle with our own sin. That is our biggest adversary. And we need to remember that the Lord is trustworthy. He's the one that we're trusting and honoring when we submit, whether or not we feel like the person deserves it or not. Submission is to be done willingly, without being contentious, without exhibiting a wearisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. Proverbs 19.13 says, The contentions of a wife are a constant dripping, just an ongoing irritation. We need to be intentional about agreeing with our husband as often as we can. And just because he's not doing something the way we would do it doesn't make him wrong. For example, it isn't helpful to jump in and correct his parenting midstream. 
It doesn't mean that we never speak up or share our opinions, particularly about major decisions and issues. We do need to speak up in appropriate, helpful, respectful ways. We do need to seek for biblical unity with our husband, especially in parenting. That's important. But we need to wait for the right time to approach him and make sure our own heart is ready to approach him with the goal of understanding what he is thinking and of building unity, not just trying to persuade him to the rightness of our position. And we need to be very careful. We shouldn't think that every decision our husband makes has to be discussed with us. We're not entitled to that. God created Eve to be a suitable helper to Adam. And so that can help us evaluate, am I being helpful or am I being wearisome and contentious? What would your husband say? What do your children see? It's also important to understand that submission does not mean that we follow our husband into sin. And if we see a sinful pattern in our husband, we can make a gracious appeal. That's part of being a helper as well. We may need to ask our husband if together we can obtain counsel from an elder or a godly couple. Being a suitable helper in the truest sense of the word may mean humbly requesting assistance when we're concerned about the consequences to our family of our husband's choices. But always, always, that needs to be done with prayer, after prayer, examining ourselves for the log in our own eye before we try to help our husband with that speck in his and with the utmost respect, humility, love, and gentleness. Well, let's finish talking about being subject with 1 Peter chapter 3. You can go ahead and turn there. We'll read beginning in verse 1. Okay, in the same way he begins, he's pointing back to Christ at the cross, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So what's the instruction? Even if you have this kind of a husband who's disobedient to the word, be submissive and let them see your pure respectful behavior. Verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Submission begins in the heart by cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. That's again why discipline one is so foundational. There's no way to cultivate genuine biblical submission without faithfully submitting ourselves to God and his word. There is protection when a woman comes under the headship of her husband. And we can't assume that all women understand this principle of submission because it is so contrary to the world's messages. We all need to be encouraged that submission strengthens our families and the church. It honors grace's instruction and it protects the reputation of God's word. It matters. It's about our heart and our willingness to trust God and submit to him by submitting to our husband. 
And that brings us to Roman numeral three. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? Well, this brings us right back to where we began. We have seen that Paul is concerned for the church and that the way in which we must be part of strengthening the church is to live in such a way that the word of God will not be dishonored. What a privilege that is. God took us from being lost, rebellious, God-haters, and he purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus to give us himself. We get God through Jesus' death in our place. I know you've heard that this year already, but what an amazing truth. And then by his grace, he places us in his body, the church, and makes us part of strengthening his church by protecting the honor of his word through our relationships and spurring one another on in godliness. That's just amazing. And so I want to close with an excerpt from the Gospel Primer, because if we don't keep the Gospel in view, these instructions could discourage us or give us a false sense of of self-righteousness if we think we're doing really well. Only the Gospel can keep these instructions in the beautiful place they deserve to have. Now you have this little handout. We just It's cut to fit in your songbook if you want to hang on to it in that way. But I'm going to read that now. Preaching the gospel to myself each day nourishes me, nourishes within me a holy brazenness to believe what God says, enjoy what he offers, and do what he commands. Admittedly, I don't deserve to be a child of God, and I don't deserve to be free of sin's guilt and power. I don't deserve the staggering privilege of intimacy with God, nor any other blessing that Christ has purchased for me with his blood. I don't even deserve to be useful to God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I have what I have, and I hereby resolve not to let any portion of God's grace prove vain in me. And to the degree that I fail to live up to this resolve, I will boldly take for myself the forgiveness that God says is mine and continue walking in his grace. This is my manifesto, my daily resolve, and may God be glorified by this confidence that I place in him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your glorious gospel. Thank you that you have given us yourself through Jesus' death in our place. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross and bearing all of God's righteous, holy wrath against all who would put their faith and trust in you. Thank you. Thank you even now that after dying and rising again and going back to heaven, you are at the right hand of the Father, and you intercede for us. We have an advocate with the Father. You are Jesus Christ the righteous. And we are so thankful to have you as a Savior and a Master. Thank you for showing us in your word your design for how we are to live and that we have this opportunity to be part of strengthening your church and protecting our homes and honoring your word. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would give each of us a love for your perfect design. Lord, I pray also for the ladies as they go to their discussion groups. I pray that this would be a time where what you've described in these verses would actually happen, that we would encourage one another 
to live in such a way that your word is protected from dishonor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I just have one more thing I want to share with you before you head off to discussion group. Go ahead and pull out your uh, homework. I know you might have a chance to talk about this in your discussion group as well, but I know that, I mean, this is just true confessions. For myself, a lot of times, even though maybe I, I know it would be a really great idea to start my homework early, and I encourage you to do that, you know, go home and do it right away. That would be really, really helpful. Sometimes that doesn't happen, and especially with a long break. We'll be here together again for like a month or something. Um, these questions are designed to help you think about how to shepherd your heart over the next month, because not only do you not have wellspring every, every other week, but you're coming up on the holidays, and you have Christmas, and you have lots of people in your lives, and lots of activities, and your schedule might be disrupted because people are out of school, or your work schedule is different, or whatever that is. And um, it's just so helpful to go into that with a plan, prepared, like, oh, okay, this is an opportunity for me to grow in these things I've just heard about, instead of just putting them in the back of my notebook and pulling them out the first week in January and feeling really guilty that I just spent a month not doing any of these things. Um, And so, especially the last question on the front of your homework, I encourage you to give this some thought, even if you don't write something down. Talk about it together in your discussion group, or pray about it in the car on your way home. What is one specific way in which you will pursue greater godliness in at least one of these areas over the Christmas holidays? What action might you need to take? And just being purposeful to pray about that, to think about that, and pick that one thing. You know what, Lord? No matter whatever else happens, whatever else doesn't happen, whatever else doesn't happen the way I want it to happen, Lord, I want to be kind. I want to protect the honor of your word by being kind to everyone around me. Whatever that one thing is, what it's, just, it's so helpful to our hearts and to everyone else around us to help us actually protect God's word from dishonor, to pick that one thing and carry it into that next month. The other thing that, again, will just be helpful for you to think about is looking day by day. Um, it's talking about our, our intention when we're meeting with God and his word to keep that worshipful. And so as you come into the next month, I want to remind you that we have a reading plan, and a reading plan is a super helpful tool. It is really, really good for our hearts and so rich to be on a plan to help us get through all of God's word on a regular basis. But the priority is not necessarily checking your box every day. Your priority is to meet with God in his word and to worship him. That's how you feel your heart to be obedient to these things we've just talked about. And so there's a list of things that you can do if you're feeling distracted or rushed or I just don't have time. You can still stop and you can open up your Wellspring songbook and you can sing through one song in there. And then you can read one part of your reading plan, even if you don't read the whole thing. So that might be another thing that's helpful to talk about in your group so that you go, you walk out of here eager to have a a strong walk with the Lord, for that to be the most important thing to you in the coming months. Anyway, thank you for letting me be here. It's so sweet to be here with all of you.